great. You've been loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. You are listening to the Already Gone podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. In the last several weeks, I've spoken with members of law enforcement about a variety of cases, some of them old, unsolved, and dusty, waiting on a tip. Other cases are fresh, active, with new information coming in each day. During these conversations, I've heard time and again something that I want to share with you, the listener. It's this. There are things that we can prove, things that we know for certain. And there are other spots in an investigation where we cannot link evidence or suspects to a crime. We can make assumptions, but those, they're not proof. Today's case is loaded with good evidence, DNA, shoe prints, a solid timeline. Since a viable suspect hasn't yet surfaced, we are prone to speculate. Is he dead? In jail on another offense? His DNA never collected and put into the system? Did he leave the country? End up in a psychiatric hospital? We can speculate, but we simply don't know. This week, we're discussing four separate attacks, each of them vicious and terrible, each of them escalating in intensity and violence, and then they stopped. While a community waited on edge, the killer moved on. Maybe he moved away. Perhaps their time in town was over, or they were taken into custody on another charge. Maybe they were killed, dying by natural causes in an accident or at the hand of another, Whatever the reason, as quickly as these violent attacks began, they stopped. And Aurora breathed a little easier. This episode contains graphic details of assault, rape, and murder. Listener discretion is strongly advised. While this killer appears to have stopped his grim work, law enforcement has not. In the last 33 years, they have made multiple attempts to locate the perpetrator. They've run down leads, followed up on similar crimes, and even tested the boundaries of science in an attempt to find the person or persons responsible. Come with me back to a cold night in 1984, to the home of James and Kimberly Hobbenschild. Sometime during the night on January 4th, an intruder enters the home and attacks the sleeping couple. He strikes them repeatedly with a hammer or another blunt instrument. James suffers a fractured skull and Kimberly a concussion, but both survive. They cannot offer much of a description of their attacker. Six days later, January 10th, 50-year-old Patricia Louise Smith returns home at lunchtime. Smith is a married woman with children and grandchildren. At the time of her murder, she was new to the Denver area. She settled in Lakewood, living with her daughter and two grandchildren. 
Smith's husband, Oliver, was still in Nebraska. He was working a government job, and he would drive to Aurora on the weekends to visit his wife and family. Their marriage was a happy one. The move allowed Smith to be a support to her daughter and spend more time with her grandchildren. Each morning, Smith would drive her daughter to the bus stop so she could get to work, and then she would take her grandchildren to school or daycare. In the evening, she would repeat the process, picking up the children and then her daughter. When Patricia didn't pick up her daughter at the end of the day, she knew something was wrong. Sherry called a friend to get her and then picked up the children, heading back to the townhome they shared. It seems that sometime between 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. that afternoon, Patricia was attacked. She'd been beaten with a hammer and sexually assaulted. No dignity in death for the grandmother. Her pants were pulled down to her ankles, her boots still on her feet. Patricia's wig was discarded, her head bare. The killer took time to lay her body out on a child's comforter in the living room. He arranged Patricia's body carefully, folding her arms over her chest. The murder weapon, a hammer, was on the floor near her body. Unfortunately, Patricia's grandchildren had raced into the house ahead of their mother, Sherry, and the image of their grandmother's body has remained with them all these years. Because Patricia Smith had lived in small towns her entire life, she grew up in South Dakota and then lived on a farm in Nebraska with her husband. She was trusting. And it's possible that she answered the door to a stranger who forced his way in and attacked her. While Patricia's rings and a gold necklace were missing, it did not appear that the killer searched the home for additional valuables. Later that day, about 10 miles east, 28-year-old Donna Dixon, a flight attendant with Frontier Airlines, is attacked in the garage of her Aurora home. Dixon is beaten, stripped naked, and raped. Her attacker slams her head repeatedly against the wheel well of her car. When Dixon is discovered on the floor next to her vehicle, she is rushed to the hospital. Dixon is in a coma. Her condition is serious, but she will recover. There have been three attacks in the southern suburbs of Denver over a six-day period. The Hub and Childs were attacked January 4th in their Aurora home. Days later, 50-year-old Patricia Smith is raped and murdered in Lakewood, a suburb about 15 miles west of Aurora, and the attack and sexual assault on flight attendant Donna Dixon in the garage of her Aurora home, which occurred within hours of the murder of Patricia Smith. I'm afraid that this killer is just getting started, because on January 16th, 1984, Someone entered a home on Center Drive in Aurora, Colorado, and unleashed his rage on an unsuspecting family of four. Dinner is a time to connect, nourishing the body and the mind. Enjoying a meal that is affordable, flavorful, and easy to prepare, it's a wonderful thing to experience. I'm not a seasoned chef, but easy-to-follow recipes and pre-portioned ingredients from Blue Apron Help me create a restaurant-quality dinner at less than $10 per person per meal. We're enjoying dishes like warm smoked trout and asparagus salad with fingerling potatoes and garlic croutons, or spiced zucchini enchiladas with creamy lime and tomato rice. One of my favorite things about Blue Apron is that I can customize the menu, so I'm serving meals the whole family will enjoy. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Find out why when you check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com 
slash already gone. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. There's no weekly commitment. You get deliveries only when you want them. That's blueapron.com slash already gone. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Bruce and Deborah Bennett were a happily married couple with two daughters, seven-year-old Melissa and three-year-old Vanessa. Bruce and Deborah married right out of high school, and Bruce enlisted in the Navy. He served for four years. He was stationed at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, as a sonar analyst. When the Bennetts returned to civilian life, Bruce worked at a local furniture store and took classes at the university. He wanted to work as an air traffic controller, and with his education complete, he felt good about his chances to land a job in the Denver area. On the afternoon of January 15, 1984, the Bennett home was a happy place. Their oldest daughter, Melissa, had a birthday coming up on January 17th. Her parents planned a small party to celebrate, a scene so many of us can relate to from our own childhood. Presents, party hats, cake, and scoops of ice cream from a carton. A day of memories and fun. What the Bennett family didn't know as they cleaned up the remnants of the celebration is that Melissa would not live to see her eighth birthday. It was after midnight, and the Bennett house was tidied up after Melissa's party. The two girls, Melissa and Vanessa, were sound asleep. Their parents had gone to bed as well. Bruce was awakened by a noise and got out of bed to investigate. It was on the stairs that he encountered a killer. Bruce struggled with the intruder, sustaining serious injuries to his arms and torso as he fought to protect his family, his wife, and his two young daughters. I wondered why Deborah didn't call the police, but it's 1984. It's unlikely that there was a telephone in her bedroom. She would have to come out and face the attacker alongside her husband to access the home phone. Investigators would find Bruce Bennett's blood smeared along the walls and carpet of the staircase. Unable to stop the intruder, Bruce succumbed to his many injuries, and the killer went into the master bedroom of the home, where he viciously beat Deborah Bennett before sexually assaulting her. His rage was not satisfied, and he moved on to the children's rooms. Seven-year-old Melissa Bennett, who spent the last night of her life celebrating a birthday milestone that she would never reach, was savagely beaten, leaving her bed soaked in blood. The killer lifted her small body, placing her on the floor of her bedroom where he raped her. He then moved on to the third bedroom, where three-year-old Vanessa lay sleeping. He raised the hammer again and again, smashing her face and skull. Blood everywhere, a family destroyed. He walked out of the house, collecting Deborah's purse on his way out the door, not knowing that three-year-old Vanessa was still alive. She would be the only survivor of the carnage on Center Drive. On Monday morning, Bruce's mother, Constance Bennett, who had been at Melissa's party just the day before, received a phone call from the furniture store where Bruce worked. He hadn't reported to work that morning, and they were concerned. It was out of character for Bruce not to show up. Calls to the Bennett home went unanswered. Constance got in her car and headed to the house on Center Drive. She was worried. A mother still worries, even when her children are grown. She thought about carbon monoxide poisoning and hoped her family wasn't in danger. 
She pulled up in front of the house. Her son's gray pickup was still parked in the driveway. The home's attached garage was open. A thin layer of January snow coated the lawn. She exited the car and stopped short when she spotted Deborah's purse on the lawn. Its contents spilled out. She entered the house to a nightmare scene. Her son's body, bloody, ruined, sprawled on the stairs. He'd fought a killer and lost. His head crushed from blows with a hammer, his throat slashed. He'd been dead for hours. His body was cold. Constance Bennett ran to the phone, placing a hysterical call to the police. Help. Won't someone please help? Her child. Her grandchildren. Bennett was so upset that she could not provide a street address. She had to set the phone down, go back outside to get the numbers, and return to the house to advise emergency services of their location. The only bright spot in the hell that her son's home had become was that Vanessa, three-year-old Vanessa, was alive. Paramedics rushed her to the hospital in critical condition. It would take several surgeries and a lot of patience, but her small blonde granddaughter would survive. In the weeks and months following the attack, Vanessa would have ten hours of reconstructive surgery on her face, skull, and jaw. I'm not sure how Constance Bennett managed to bury her son, her daughter-in-law, and her grandchild, as well as provide care and support to her grievously wounded surviving granddaughter. But let's raise a glass to Constance Bennett, a strong, determined woman who made it through this nightmare. Law enforcement said there was no forced entry to the Bennett home. While Deborah's purse was taken and discarded on the front lawn, robbery did not appear to be the motive. He was there to satisfy his rage, and he used a hammer along with knives from the Bennett kitchen to do so, leaving a trail of unspeakable violence and cruelty in his wake. January 16th was 12 days since the Hobbinshilds were attacked on January 4th, six days since the attack on Donna Dixon and the murder of Patricia Smith. Twelve days. But then, no more. He didn't strike again. As quickly as he came to suburban Denver, the hammer-wielding monster was gone. In 1984, Aurora Police spokesperson Mike Selman told the press that Deborah's purse, along with a bloodstained knife, were found out in front of the home. The Bennets were new to this neighborhood. They moved in around Thanksgiving of 1983. Headlines from the local papers read, Family slain, girl clings to life, and Police want to question three in deaths. Also, Brutal killings leave another neighborhood in fierce grasp. Local construction workers were looked at, since the weapon used as a common tool for construction or build teams. Meanwhile, the Bennett family, Bruce, Deborah, and their daughter Melissa, are buried at the Fort Logan National Cemetery in Denver. Vanessa remains hospitalized. Her jaw was shattered and bone fragments were lodged in her windpipe. Doctors would insert a shunt in her head to reduce swelling. The blonde toddler endured many surgeries. Aurora police worked this case hard. Looking back across the decades, we can see that the killer didn't strike again. But in early 1984, the community was frightened and police worked hard to track down this killer, not wanting him to strike again. Not wanting a repeat of the horrific scene on Central Drive. 
More than 20 officers were assigned, and over 500 people were questioned in the case. Evidence was painstakingly collected and processed. Rape kits, fingerprints, fiber evidence. The Aurora police even cut out a section of the garage floor to preserve a boot print left behind by the killer. Weeks turned into months. Little Vanessa was released from the hospital. Her paternal grandmother, Constance Bennett, would raise her, providing a safe and loving home for the child who lost everything that she knew on one cold January night. The community rallied around Vanessa. Fundraisers were held to help pay for her recovery from the many surgeries she'd endured. This was a double-edged sword. The more people rallied around her, the more her survival was publicized, not just to the community, but to the killer who learned that he left a witness behind. The New Jersey couple who purchased the Bennett home months after the attacks learned of the crime from their new neighbors. I cannot find if the couple decided to stay in the house or if they moved away upon learning of the home's history. In interviews with the press over the years, Constance shared Vanessa's progress, that she still suffered effects from the attack, but was a normal teenage girl. She played a musical instrument and did well in school. Vanessa's face and neck showed scars from the attack and the surgeries to save her life. In 1994, Vanessa was asked if she thinks about that day. Her response? Every time somebody asks me what happened to my face, that's when I think about it, which is almost every day. I tell them I got hit with a hammer, and that's it. Mercifully, Vanessa had no memory of that night, but she did remember her parents, her sister, and the home they lived in on Center Drive. Today, Vanessa is in her mid-thirties and lives quietly out of the spotlight. More recently, Donna Holm, the Frontier flight attendant who was attacked and left for dead, talked to the press about her hopes that the man who attacked her, possibly the same man who killed Patricia Smith and the Bennett family, will be caught after all these years. She's now in her sixties and still holds out hope that he will be brought to justice. Aurora police have not let this case languish. In the years since 1984, they have looked at similar attacks in Texas, Florida, Indiana, California, and Ohio, but none proved to be their killer. While it's an old case and unsolved, it has not been forgotten. In June 2002, 19 years after the murders, Jim Smith, the Arafo County District Attorney, he obtained a John Doe arrest warrant in the case based on the DNA profile left at the Bennett home. Peters charged John Doe with 18 counts, including three counts of first-degree murder, two counts of sexual assault, first-degree assault, and two counts of sexual assault on a child, as well as burglary. Investigators have used the evidence they have, pushing the boundaries of DNA technology, including having an image generated of what the suspect may have looked like in 1984 and what he may look like today. This photo which is not a snapshot of the perpetrator, but an approximate image of what he might look like, is available on my website, www.alreadygonepodcast.com. When you look at the photos, remember that as of 2017, the killer would be at least 50 years of age and spent time in the Denver area in late 1983 and early 1984. While researching this case, I connected with Detective Steve Connor of the Aurora, Colorado Police Department. 
He was a young patrolman with the Aurora Police in 1984. Now the Bennett murders? It's his case. Hoping to generate new leads and new information in the investigation, he agreed to be interviewed for this episode. Would you mind introducing yourself for the listeners? Steve Connor. And what is your role with the Aurora Police Department? Um, I'm a detective assigned to the cold case unit. Before we get in and I ask you some questions about the case, I want to say that in the reading that I've done, it really looks like the original detectives and then later detectives have worked this case very thoroughly, like really no stone unturned and even used some new technology trying to generate leads and information. I get a lot of questions about, well, did they do this? Did they do that? But it really seems like you've left no stone unturned in this investigation over the last 30-some years. Well, I'd like to think so, yes. (laughs) Well, it certainly appears that way on the outside looking in. My first question is regarding the weapons used to attack the victims. There were four scenes, uh, January 4th, on the 9th, the 10th, and then the 16th. In reading the different articles, it said that he left weapons at the scenes, there's four cases that are potentially connected, three in Aurora, one in uh, Lakewood. The only forensic connection to any of them is Bennett family case and the uh, Smith case in Lakewood. Okay. The other ones we believe are probably, but to definitively state that, yes, they are, uh, we can't draw a connection, a physical connection between the two. Okay. And that makes sense because what we were collecting in 84 is not the same thing that we're collecting now. Correct. And the collection techniques are not like they are now. Right. One of the articles I read said that he would leave weapons at the scenes, which sounds like he was using a hammer. And was he? I'm assuming he was not showing up looking for a hammer, that he was bringing in his own. That would be uh, an assumption we would make. Most people that are involved in you know, this type of crime, if they're prepared, will bring the weapon with them. If they're unprepared, not expecting a confrontation or expecting that if they are confronted, they leave or take off, then no. But uh, again, trying to not definitively state right. that that is the case. But Okay. Was the Bennett case the only instance where he used to your knowledge, that he used a knife? I believe so, yes. And you said that there's not evidence conclusively tying the four attacks together, but just the Smith case and the Bennett case are for certain associated. Um, Right, through DNA, yes. Can you talk a little bit about the John Doe warrant that was obtained in 2002 and and why that's important to the case? Um, It was obtained by uh, other detectives that worked case earlier from DNA extracted at the scene. The warrant basically is issued for the person whose DNA matches the profile. So if someone is arrested for, let's say, uh, an offense that would require his DNA be taken but not have him specifically held for bond or the bond would be so low that he could get out, this would prevent that or hopefully at least acknowledge the fact that this person is in custody at this location and then they could be held on the, the warrant that states this is the suspect's DNA. Okay. Is there a statute of limitations issue? No. Okay. And then in August of 2016, an image was released of what the suspect in this case could potentially look like. Correct. That seems like a very new technology. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about? 
I had done some research on it on the internet, and um, I also talked it over with the uh, the district attorney at the time down in the 18th Judicial. So if this person is located, contacted, arrested, they would be the uh, prosecution agency for the offense. And I said, here's the technology. We discussed it. He liked it. I liked it. So we just did some research on it. And then after doing the research and determining what the resources would have to be expended to do that, basically I sent it to my bosses. They agreed that we should try it. And we contacted the company that was providing the the service because they had done it, I think, in maybe half a dozen other cases up to that point, you know, basically let them run with the, uh, the information we had on the DNA. I will post the pictures on my website for listeners, but it's a pretty interesting composite, not just of what he may look like now, but what he may have looked like in 84. Right. So they, they even did the age progression for him. Right. I, I had asked him to do that because the, the crime is over 30 years old. I'm assuming there would be some. And, and if you look at it, I mean, it's basically the same general features, only the hair is gray and some of the features are aged. And I have to, I guess, put a caveat in here. This is like, um, you know, I want to say first generation composite. I mean, 10 years from now with the same DNA, they could enhance the features even more. When we released this, we knew we'd probably get a, a flood of calls, and then we did. But most people that called, called based on, hey, that guy looks like this, or that guy looks like this person I know. And the features are very generic. Right. And people weren't realizing that um, when they would call. And I said, I'd start asking follow-up questions. You know, how do you know? Has he ever been to Colorado? Things like that. What they have to focus in on is the physical description portion, not the composite portion. And then so, also the age of the suspect. Right. I mean, you could uh, you could also throw in, you know, did this guy wear glasses? We don't know that. Did the guy have a pockmarked face from acne scars? We don't know that. Uh, is he heavier weight? I mean, they put parameters of the description in there, but if the guy is, you know, overweight, the features are going to change, or if he's underweight, the features are going to change. Does he have a beard? Things like that. So I all that would change the appearance. Yes, all of that would. And then lifestyle choices, if they were a smoker or if they were a sunbather, could also change Correct. their appearance. I understand that the there were two people that survived the attacks, the Bennett family's youngest daughter and then the Hobbin Childs, I'm probably not saying that right, but James and Kimberly, they were attacked and survived. Right. Donna Dixon was assaulted and survived. And then the youngest daughter, who was only three, she was very small. I don't expect she was able to give much of a description of the attackers, but were the other potential, vic- you know, people that were potentially other victims of this person, were they able to give any sort of description? And what did they think of the DNA composite? Donna Dixon doesn't recall anything. Um, I interviewed a couple times over the phone. It's basically she woke up in the hospital and had no recall of the attack. And I think the same was true with the is it Hobbin child. They weren't able to provide a a detailed description of the person. But again, neither one of those cases have been forensically connected to each other or to the Bennett case. So I caution that. I mean, I believe right. they probably are, but at the same time, I have to work with, could it be yes? Was it definitively that? No. Okay. 
The geographical similarities of the cases, I'm, I'm not familiar with Aurora, but it, I seem to recall reading that they were all sort of off the Alameda Avenue except for the Lakewood attack, or is... Well, I think that's... Uh, and the corridor itself is interrupted many times between where it starts in Aurora and where it ends in Lakewood. Okay. Do I think that's... Is it possible he drove down Alameda and to these different places? I personally believe, and it's just, you know, no scientific technology behind it. I think it's just coincidental. I okay. don't think that he specifically said, here's a route that I'm comfortable with or a road that I'm comfortable with, because it just doesn't, it's not a straight shot. I mean, you have to take detours basically around certain things to get from Alameda Avenue on in Aurora to the Lakewood side. Okay. And then there were these 12 days, assuming all, assuming that the four attacks are connected, there were these 12 days of rather frenzied activity, mm-hmm. and then nothing. Correct. He could have moved away. He could have been hospitalized. He could have been visiting. I've seen people mention that it was right after the holidays, so maybe he was in town for the holidays and was stressed, and this was some sort of coping mechanism. And again, I read online that you have investigated similar attacks in different areas over the years that were possibly being related to these. Right. We go through the FBI to track similar types of cases, you know, nationwide. Using that and giving that to the FBI, there's nothing that they come up with that would match. I mean, there's some similarities. We check them out. It's not even, you know, not even close, the time, the date. He couldn't be in two places at one time type of thing. To me, it just sounds like, or what I can determine is, it was a spree, he's done, and either, you know, you can say he's incarcerated, because DNA being taken from a suspect uh, at the time of his arrest or while he's in custody wasn't made law till um, I think, 1996 or 1998, so you have 12, 14 years where DNA wasn't collected. When people right. in custody, people in prison, things like that. My guess is if you truly have a thrill killer or a serial killer or whatever you want to call them, they're not going to stop. And that's one thing that's consistent with the contacts I have with the FBI. You just don't do this and then stop. You can slow down for a while. You can stop for a while, but then, you know, you're going to be back at it again. So, you know, many things could have happened to him. He could be dead. He could be in a foreign country. He could be, I would say, in a mental institution, which DNA is not secured from right. hospital patients. So there's a, a vast cross-section of society that we are not securing DNA from to include people that, say, pass away of natural causes. The, the DNA is not, I mean, it's secured usually by the pathologist, but it's not entered into any database to say, okay, let's compare this to people that we're looking that's really interesting because I had not thought of that as being, it makes sense that if someone dies of, in a car accident or they're right. murdered, their DNA goes on file, but it's not necessarily put into the same database as the specimens captured January 17th in Aurora after this assault. Right. So you have, and, and you, you bring up a good point, people that die in car accidents, their DNA goes nowhere. They're, they're, you know, they're buried, cremated, whatever. So, I mean, this guy could have died in a car accident, and unless we can find a 
connection to a family member who has some DNA somewhere that's, you know, stored somewhere. Basically, you know, we're kind of at a dead end right now. That was sort of leading into my next question about the DNA collection. I'm assuming that he's in the national database, the FBI database. You know, he's it's been sent all over to be hopefully right. captured should it show up in the system. Right. His the, the suspect's DNA is in CODIS. So if and I'll, I'll get into an explanation on that too. If if there's someone who is arrested for a uh, CODIS qualifying arrest. And their and their DNA is put into CODIS, and it is our suspect will get a hit. Other things to consider are there are what we call offline databases where someone's DNA may be captured, but it isn't doesn't meet the criteria or the protocol for entry into CODIS that the FBI has established. So that specimen, that uh, DNA, is kept in a database that does not report to or send it to the FBI. If, say, this person has a son and this person's son commits a crime and his DNA is captured, would it ping to you as a familial match? Or does that not... It seems like it's sort of a gray area, which is why I wanted to ask. It would not... it It certainly wouldn't be a hit. We would have to we would have to request a familial search specifically for this DNA and the, the YSTR for that for that DNA. And I've shopped that around too. I say shop around because I've gone to different databases saying, you know, here's the profile. Here's the profile on the YSTR, the male chromosome. Do you have anything on this? And so far I've got, gotten nothing. Because this is, I just happened to have covered two cases out of Aurora in the last month. I covered the Al-Kite case mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I understand why people keep suggesting these to me, because these are really, really nasty cases. Mm-hmm. This, um, Both of these, mm-hmm. obviously, this person was a little more prolific. But, man, I did not think of Aurora as being such a interesting place for cold cases. Well, um, I mean, if you look around, you can, like Los Angeles Police Department, they probably have a boatload of, you know, interesting cases out there. I mean, we just, uh, I think we push harder with our, I mean, as far as getting it out into the media saying, okay, what else can we do with this? The public's aware of it. We're using all the technology we can at our disposal. You know, I think if you went to LAPD, they would have a lot more Interesting cases. Of course, but just not not talking anything bad about Aurora. Please mm-hmm. don't please don't interpret it that oh, no. way. But just it's interesting to me that these two sort of particularly disturbing cases came out of you know one was from eighty four, one was from two thousand four, so certainly not the same time frame. But wow. Well, and, and I know, especially in what was it uh, three years ago, maybe four years ago now, I was working a nineteen eighty case, and I made or an 81 case, and I made, through DNA, one of those cases on one of the serial killers then. Wow. That's awesome. So, like 30 years later, I, it's a matter of just going through the, all the evidence again, which would be best suited for DNA testing, then going from there. So it's because right now I'm sitting on 11 cases where I have solid suspect DNA. And you're just sort of waiting for somebody I, to show up? Exactly, waiting for the hit <sighs> and... My oldest one, let me look here, I've got it on the board. My oldest one would be the Bennett case from 84. Wow. 
and then I have one from '86. Where it's just, it's will it ever hit? You know, you gotta gotta think about the odds of someone still being around. Yeah, it's sort lifestyle. of a perfect storm of right. they're still around and they're they get in trouble for something else. Well, and that's what for me for this, it's like I don't know what the next generation technology would be to bring us a step closer to finding out who murdered this family, who murdered Miss Smith. But it has to be difficult because you're just sort of waiting for somebody to do something wrong, or for the technology to catch up. Right. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me about this case today. And if people have information about the Bennett family murders or the murder of Patricia Smith, what number should they call? Uh, they can call me directly at 303-739-6190. And if I'm, if I'm not here, they can just leave a message. Terrific. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. You're welcome. In the 33 years since a residents of Aurora double-checked their doors and turned on their porch lights before bed, the case has been worked assertively and consistently. As new DNA technology comes to light, I expect that police will continue to work and process the evidence they have, hoping to locate this brutal killer. One piece of evidence that we haven't discussed is a bloody mark left on Melissa Bennett's pajamas. When the killer lifted her small body out of bed, he left a series of letters imprinted on the fabric of her pajamas. Experts cannot agree on what those letters spell out or what the letters mean. Two different labs took a look at these markings. The Arizona Department of Public Safety felt that the letters spelled R-I-C-H-A-R. Perhaps the name Richard or some variation of that name like Richardson. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police had an entirely different take on the imprint. They saw P-E-T-A-W, then a space, perhaps a fold or a gap, then the letter C which seems like a nonsense word unless you are familiar with Canadian Forces Base Petawawa in Ontario. It's one of the largest and busiest operational bases of the Canadian military. It is located 160 kilometers northwest of Ottawa, the seat of the Canadian government. If you're wondering about other suspects who could be involved in this crime, the name Dwayne Eugene Owen came up. He committed similar crimes in Palm Beach County, Florida, during the spring of 1984. Sometime during the night of May 29, 1984, Owen entered the home of Georgiana Warden. He attacked her as she slept in her bed. He sexually assaulted her after bludgeoning her with a hammer. In the morning, Warden's children found her when they woke up for school. Owen was arrested on... May 30th, 1984, on unrelated charges, and during questioning, he confessed to the warden murder. Owen has been ruled out as a suspect in the Aurora Hammer murders, and he remains on death row in Florida. If you have information about the Aurora Hammer murders, please contact Detective Steve Connor at area code 303-739-6190. Support the show by visiting our sponsor, Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash already gone. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. We are just two short weeks away from the Detroit area meetup featuring myself and Aaron and Justin of the Generation Y podcast. It's Saturday, July 8th. 
from 2 until 5 p.m. at Doc's Sports Retreat in Livonia. It's an open house format. You can stay for the whole event or just pop in to say hello. We will have some goodies and giveaways for attendees. Send me an email if you'll be joining us. I would love to see you there. Finally, I want to thank those of you who came out to CrimeCon. I met dozens of people, and I know that I'm forgetting some names, but Michelle, Elisa, Kristen, Fran, Amy, Shane, Jesse, Aaron, Holly, Laura, Christy, Kim, and Kimberly. Thank you. I was also finally able to meet some of my pod people. You know who you are, and thank you for making the weekend memorable. Special thanks go out to Lainey from the True Crime Fan Club, Heidi from Unsolved Podcast, and Mike Brown from the Pleasing Terrors Podcast. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. Thank you for listening, and please, be safe. Loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One NA.